Hey everyone, welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rob, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. James Duquetis, a professor of medicine and the David Braley Nancy Gordon Chair in Thromboembolic Disease at McMaster University. He is the first author of the American College of Chess Physicians Clinical Practice Guideline on the Perioperative Management of Antithrombotic Therapy that was published in the journal Chest recently. Dr. Duquetis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rob. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you here to discuss this rather detailed clinical practice guideline in a quite complicated area of medicine. This document covers vitamin K antagonists, direct oral anticoagulants, and heparin bridging for patients with chronic atrial fibrillation, mechanical heart valves, or venous thromboembolism, and antiplatelet agents for mainly cardiac patients. There are 43 PICO questions here with 44 guideline recommendations. I wonder, was this a difficult guideline to develop, and how did you even start? Well, thanks again for the opportunity to discuss the ACCP CHEST uh, guidelines on perioperative antithrombotic management. This was a guideline that was rather overdue because it was anchored on two previous guidelines published in 2008 and 2012. And we were delighted to be able to do this because since that last iteration, we have had the direct oral anticoagulants or DOAC come onto the scene and they've become the dominant anticoagulants in many clinical indications. But we also wanted to update the literature on a variety of areas, including perioperative heparin bridging and perioperative antiplatelet drug use. So it was a nice opportunity to update the evidence. And we're delighted that it finally got published in 2022. Great. So I think we should probably start with some definitions uh, in this very lengthy document. So we're all on the same page when we listen to the recommendations. Can you take us through the important terms for our listeners and any qualifying remarks? Sure. Maybe what I can do, Rob, is kind of provide a bit of an insider's view of how these guidelines and recommendations were developed. And just to allow people to understand that guideline development is a very rigorous process that has many steps that have to be adhered to. But at the end of the day, there's also a subjective element, and there are people who are gathered to want to provide the best available recommendations, but also do so in a manner, in our case, that's very practical. So for the audience, when they look at a recommendation, they have to take into consideration that it was based on direct evidence, but also indirect evidence. In other words, evidence from other areas that pertain to that general area. And then thirdly, there's also the interpretation of the studies, the strengths and limitations. Finally, it's really important to notice that the recommendations required a certain amount of consensus. So within that process, we wanted to provide recommendations about management in various clinical domains that provide clinicians with a kind of how-to approach. How do you assess thromboembolic and bleeding risk? How do you bridge how do you integrate VTE prophylaxis? And importantly, how do you communicate and ensure that there is good consensus amongst the various caregivers involved in the perioperative setting? And then finally, to your point about definitions, we also wanted to define what are we talking about in terms of the patient groups? And we focused mainly on the dominant indications for anticoagulant therapy and antiplatelet therapy, which are patients 
who have a mechanical heart valve, atrial fibrillation, venous thromboembolism, or coronary artery disease. And of course, we define the various antithrombotic treatments, whether they were a vitamin K antagonist, a DOAC, or an antiplatelet agent. And then in terms of the actual period of perioperative management, we define that period as starting from about five days before a planned surgery to about 30 days after. So again, we're looking at planned elective surgery. We did not address emergency or urgent surgery, which is a very different clinical domain and was beyond the scope of these guidelines. So certainly sounds like a very rigorous process and a very comprehensive guideline. I think we all commend you and the panel on your effort. If it's okay with you, I might focus the initial discussion on anticoagulants. I think we're all trying to do our best with patients in balancing the risk of bleeding versus the risk of clot formation. Could you take us through the pharmacology of these drugs in relation to their clearance? I think that'll help us understand the specific recommendations. Sure. So why is an understanding of pharmacology, specifically pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of anticoagulants and antiplatelets important? We typically don't think about it when we're prescribing these drugs, but it is very important in a perioperative setting because we want to ensure whether a drug is removed from the circulation that patients don't have an active anticoagulant or antiplatelet effect, for example, for certain types, let's say, high bleed risk surgery. And we need to rely on the pharmacological properties because we don't often have routinely available rapid tests in all clinical situations. Sure, you can do an INR one or two days before surgery in patients who may be on warfarin to check if there's any residual effect, but you may not be able to do that in all circumstances. Similarly, we don't have a test that we can use to measure DOACs that is widely available and reliable. And then for the antiplatelet therapy, there are not really a lot of reliable and well-studied tests of antiplatelet function. So in the absence of these widely available tests, we have to rely on both the pharmacokinetic properties and pharmacodynamic properties of these drugs. Have a basic understanding. It's really important for perioperative management. So could you give us some examples of the common drugs in terms of expected pharmacodynamics? Sure, I'd be happy to, Rob. So let's consider, first of all, the vitamin K antagonists. In North America and in many countries, warfarin is widely used. And we know, for example, it has a half-life of between 36 and 42 hours. On the other hand, in some countries, for example, in Europe, their vitamin K antagonists is usually acetocumarol, which is very different. It has a much shorter 8 to 11 hour half-life. And then there are infrequent circumstances when patients might receive fenprocumon, which has a much longer half-life of 96 to 104 hours. So in this situation, having that knowledge of the pharmacokinetic properties, in this case, half-life, is very important to determine how long you interrupt the drug. And for the warfarin, of course, we recommend interruption of at least five days based on those PK principles. Similarly, with the DOACs, which have a half-life of about 8 to 12 hours, it's also important to tailor the interruption according to that half-life and according to the patient's risk. But the other part of the pharmacokinetic effect with DOACs that's really important in a perioperative setting is their onset of action. 
a lot of clinicians may not be aware that when you take a DOAC, its peak anticoagulant effect occurs one to three hours after oral intake. Now, that may not be important when you're starting somebody on treatment for, let's say, atrial fibrillation, but it is very important when you're resuming the DOAC after a surgery or procedure, particularly if it's a high bleed risk, because you don't want that peak anticoagulant effect to cause bleeding. And then finally, when we look at the antiplatelet drugs, it's very important to separate the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effect. So the half-life of aspirin or other P2Y12 inhibitors like clopidogrel or ticagrelor is only a few hours. But as we know, in the case of aspirin, clopidogrel, and prasigrel, these are irreversible platelet inhibitors. So once they act in on the platelets, their effect lasts way beyond their half-life. So their pharmacodynamic effect is that they impair platelet function for the lifespan of the platelet for seven to 10 days. And it's a little bit less with the cagrelor, which has some reversibility in its antiplatelet effect. So really important to have a basic understanding of the PK and PD properties of these drugs to allow you to use them safely and effectively perioperatively. Yeah, I think that's a really good teaching point that we need to think of these drugs in a slightly different way in terms of whether we're stopping them or restarting them. I think every patient is different in terms of their risk of clot formation and bleeding. And the guidelines set out in table one, the subgroups of patients at particular risk of thrombus formation. Can you tell us more about those patient populations? Sure. Now, when as a clinician, I'm seeing a patient for perioperative management, what anchors my assessment is an empiric but patient-centric evaluation of what I think is their thromboembolic risk and what I think is their bleeding risk. And the former is driven by a number of factors. So whether a patient has a mechanical heart valve, for example, a mitral valve is higher risk than an aortic valve, whether they have atrial fibrillation, a very high CHADS or CHADS VASCOR is higher risk than a low CHADS score. And whether they have VTE, a higher risk is whether they, the episode occurred, let's say pulmonary embolism within a month or is more remote. And the bleeding risk is driven largely by the surgery or procedure, not due to as much patient factors. But these two elements anchor how we manage patients, whether we need to interrupt anticoagulants, and if so, how do we manage them? When do we interrupt? If we interrupt a vitamin K antagonist, do we need to bridge? I need to point out, and this is a very important point, Rob, these risk assessment formulations are empiric. They have not been validated prospectively, but we develop them to allow clinicians to have a starting point to assess risk for thromboembolism and bleeding. And they have to be used in conjunction with clinical judgment. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say I had a patient with atrial fibrillation who needed an elective surgery on a DOAC, and they had a CHAT score of three. But let's say that CHAD score included a prior stroke that occurred perioperatively, and let's say their other factor is hypertension. Although the risk formulation may consider those as low to moderate risk, in fact, you might consider that patient higher risk because they had a perioperative stroke. So the 
table is there to provide a starting point to assess patient risk, but it has to be combined with individual patient characteristics and your clinical judgment. Yeah, I think, you know, applying guidelines rigidly to every patient you see is obviously not a good idea, but this guideline is a very useful resource to residents if they have questions in terms of peri-op management. So I think that's a good understanding of patient factors, procedural risk, metabolism of these drugs. As a practical example, let's start with warfarin. I think the guideline recommends stopping for at least five days for anything other than minimal bleeding risk. What do the guidelines recommend regarding vitamin K if the INR is still high preoperatively? So there still are a lot of patients who are receiving warfarin nowadays, not just for mechanical heart valves, but also for atrial fibrillation worldwide. And it's something that we'll continue to see until they are replaced entirely by other agents. In the area of warfarin interruption, our recommendation is at least five days of interruption. And the only caveat there is that you may require an extra day or two in selected patients, let's say, who have a higher target INR if they have a mechanical heart valve or in some patients that you know because of age or other drug interactions may metabolize the warfarin less quickly. So once again, part of that individualized management. In regard to the vitamin K, it might seem counterintuitive to listeners. So why would you not give vitamin K if you did an INR and it was over 1.5? Well, the reason is that when we looked at the evidence, so our recommendations are anchored on the actual evidence. The data are not very good to support the use of vitamin K because these are observational studies and the efficacy to reduce the INR was not sort of robust or uniform. And the other part is that patients don't routinely get INRs before a surgery. And we don't advocate for that because there are a number of studies that forego doing an INR the day of the surgery, as long as you have that at least five-day window of warfarin interruption and rates of major bleeding are quite low. So it doesn't appear to affect clinically meaningful outcomes. The other part was a practical part that we mentioned that vitamin K may not be easily available in an oral form. It sometimes can be given intravenously, which we don't want to recommend routinely, and may lead to warfarin reinitiation resistance. So for those reasons, we did not recommend the routine administration of vitamin K for patients who had a higher INR over 1.5. Of course, this does not exclude you doing that if, let's say, a patient unexpectedly has an INR of, let's say, two or two and a half. Of course, you're going to give vitamin K to allow that surgery to proceed within the next day or so. You mentioned prosthetic valves at the start of your answer. I think a lot of people would like to hear from you Given the recommendation in the guideline about mechanical valves, and maybe you could tell us a bit about the thinking behind that. Sure. And this is one of the controversial areas that might raise a bit of eyebrows among readers or listeners. And in our guideline recommendations, we actually suggest against bridging in patients with atrial fibrillation. This is a moderate strength of evidence also against bridging in patients with venous thromboembolism, and perhaps unexpectedly in 
patients with a mechanical heart valve, of course, all of whom these three groups would be receiving warfarin. But we go on to say the following. So we're starting out with the premise that the default should be not to bridge. And the rationale for that is if you look at the totality of evidence, whether it is in any of these three groups, but particularly in patients with atrial fibrillation, we found that the evidence does not support bridging as a way of mitigating against the risk of perioperative arterial thromboembolism, but there is consistent evidence that it increases the risk for bleeding. You don't want to have bleeding perioperatively because that in turn may lead to further delay in resumption of anticoagulation, which will have the undesired effect of exposing those patients to an increased risk of stroke and other thromboembolism. So we're starting with that premise that the default is don't bridge, but we go on to provide additional recommendations that you can bridge patients who are deemed at high risk. So that's when you can apply the thromboembolic risk table to identify who might be some of these patients. So patients with a mechanical heart valve in the mitral position that have at least one risk factor, which is pretty well all mechanical mitral valve patients, patients who have a very high CHADS score, CHADS VAS score, patients who have had a recent within a three months episode of venous thromboembolism. Those are patients that we actually advocate in favor of bridging, although that is a kind of conditional recommendation based on very weak evidence. And then we also go on to say, as I alluded to earlier, Rob, that clinical judgment plays a role. So just because somebody falls into that low-risk category by the table doesn't mean you cannot consider them at high risk based on individualized factors. So yes, we're advocating against bridging, but with important caveats and qualifiers. Right. So again, kind of re-emphasizing taking the clinical context into account when interpreting these guidelines. You also make recommendations for more minor procedures like dental, minor skin surgeries, ICDs and colonoscopies. Can you tell us about the recommendations for those procedures? Sure. And these are procedures that are very common. You know, we're dealing with clinicians who have to advise either healthcare professionals, whether they're dentists, eye surgeons, or dermatologists. But there's also an increase in use of pacemakers and ICDs over the last one to two decades. And there's actually some very good literature now that is supporting the continuation of anticoagulants, particularly vitamin K antagonists around pacemaker and ICD implantation. And that's why there we had a, a strong recommendation in favor of continuation versus interruption and or bridging. The evidence is not as robust in patients having either minor procedures, either dental, eye, or skin, but there are weaker recommendations, conditional recommendations, again, to continue anticoagulants in minor procedures. And we try to define these. Once again, having said that, not all dental procedures are the same, and having a tooth extraction may not be the same risk in all patients. So you have to take that into consideration. And this is where we come back to the point I made earlier in our kind of preamble about the importance of communication among healthcare providers. It's a very multi-directional communication pathway. And you want to talk to the dentist and say, what's the patient 
like in terms of their bleeding risk? And let's not forget the patient perspective. Are they concerned about bleeding? It may not be clinically important, but it sure may be important to the patient. So these factors have to be taken into consideration. But overall, we're advocating continuing anticoagulants in a number of procedures. And as regard to colonoscopies, we're also advocating their avoidance of bridging once again, and also caution that colonoscopies can be very different. It could be something screening, but versus somebody who you know has a history of polyps and will need a polypectomy, which itself is a high bleed risk procedure. So general concepts combined with individualized patient-centric management. When bridging protocols are used, are there any recommendations in the guidelines in terms of depending on what heparin you're using, when to start and stop perioperatively? Yes, there are, Rob. So bridging anticoagulation isn't used as much nowadays as it was 15, 20 years ago, but it still has a role. And we do provide kind of a how-to bridge if you are going to do it in terms of when to administer bridging therapy preoperatively, what dose to use. For example, we recommend to use half the total daily dose the day before the surgery in the morning so to allow that anticoagulant effect to be eliminated at the time of the surgery. And we also advise staggered resumption of bridging postoperatively, particularly for a high bleeding risk surgery so that you don't start for 40 to 72 hours. And we also look at it as in a nuanced way. For example, I alluded earlier to a distinction between bridging, which we define as a therapeutic dose, low molecular heparin or unfractionated heparin regimen, and a low-dose regimen that is used predominantly for the prevention of venous thromboembolism, Whether whereas bridging that I've just referred to is designed to prevent arterial thromboembolism. So we talk about how can you integrate VT prophylaxis for the first two or three days after a surgery before you start their bona fide bridging two to three days later. So all of these kind of how-to messages are incorporated in this guideline. And we hope it can be used at the point of care to help clinicians. So I'd briefly like to also discuss DOACs, obviously far more commonly used now. Can you give us some recommendations from the guideline regarding DOAC interruption perioperatively? Sure. So with the DOACs, and I'm referring to four agents, apixaban, dabigatran, edoxaban, and rivaroxaban, And although they are slightly different, we try to provide recommendations for each DOAC, but there's commonalities. And the commonalities are anchored on the fact that all of these have a elimination half-life of between 8 and 12 hours. One exception is patients who are taking dabigatran and have impaired renal function because dabigatran, unlike the other DOACs, is cleared predominantly by the kidney. There, the interruption interval that is required is longer. But for most situations, we recommend it's a weak or conditional recommendation because there aren't a lot of high-quality RCT data to interrupt for one to two days before the surgery or procedure and to resume similarly within one to two days or longer, depending on the bleeding risk. So here with DOAC management, it's really, really important to identify what you think the bleeding risk for the patient is. And one area that the second area of controversy that may come up, Rob, 
it has to do with patients who are receiving neuraxial. So I'm referring to spinal or epidural anesthesia or procedures for pain management, like a lumbar block, that sort of thing. The reason it's controversial is because there are a number of anesthesia societies, for example, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, that generally recommend longer intervals of DOAC interruption prior to neuraxial or other high bleeding risk surgeries or procedures, whereas we recommend only a two-day interruption interval for those patients. So why do we think two days is sufficient? Well, first of all, we have a fair bit of data on two days of interruption of a DOAX. Let's say somebody's having a procedure on a Friday, and then their last dose of the DOAC will be on the Tuesday. So nothing on Wednesday, nothing on the Thursday. So we have a lot of data on that kind of interruption interval, whereas we don't have very much of any clinical data on longer intervals of interruption and what that means in terms of bleeding risk and thromboembolic risk. The second point is that we also have data that shows if you interrupt for about for two days, then the residual anticoagulant effect when it's measured in almost all cases is less than 50 nanograms per ml, which is considered by many, but not by all, a safe level to proceed with any kind of surgery, including neuraxial anesthesia. And then the third rationale for a two-day interval is that actually when you look at the time interval, so let's say you're having surgery on the Friday at noon and you take your last dose of your DOAC on the Tuesday at supper time. Well, that's actually about a 60 to 68-hour interval between the last dose and the time of surgery. That's five elimination half-lives for the DOAC. So we're achieving the aim of allowing an elimination of that DOAC with a two-day interval interruption, but it still remains an area of controversy. And I think it's something that I think we need to discuss with our anesthesia and other surgical colleagues. I think that's a great tour through managing anticoagulation in the perioperative period. I think we should also discuss antiplatelet agents that are covered in this guideline, particularly that difficult circumstance that we come across with recent PCI and coronary stem placement. Can you tell us a little bit again about the pharmacology of these agents? Sure. So the three main areas that we cover with it respect to antiplatelet management are patients who are having non-cardiac surgery, coronary artery bypass surgery, and then patients who, as you just referred to, Rob, who have a coronary stent implanted and typically are receiving dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and a P2Y12 inhibitor, which is usually either clopidogrel, ticagrelor, or less commonly, prasugrel. And here, it's really important to understand the pharmacodynamics because most of these drugs are irreversibly affect platelet function. So if you give somebody a dose of any of these drugs, those platelets will be inhibited for the duration of that platelet lifespan, which is seven to two, 10 days. And that's why for circumstances when we want to recommend interruption of these agents, which we do do in the guidelines, the interruption interval is seven to 10 days for many of these drugs, a little bit less for ticagrelor because it has an element of reversibility in terms of the platelet inhibition. So that's the pharmacodynamic effect, sort of what it does. And then, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, the pharmacokinetic effect is very different because the half-life is only a few hours. So 
that part is not so important here. It's more the pharmacodynamic effect. But back to the situation with the patient with PCI and a stent, this is a really complex situation. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good data to direct our recommendations. So the recommendations we do have are conditional or weak recommendations. But the first is, of course, that we want to advise clinicians to delay the surgery, if it's possible, beyond at least a one to three month period. And sometimes that may not be feasible. So if it's not feasible or not clinically acceptable, for example, somebody with a neoplasm in whom there's a need to resect it urgently or promptly, then we do recommend a management where the aspirin is continued, but the P2I12 inhibitor is interrupted at least three to five days if it's tetacagrelor, and then seven to 10 days if it's prasugrel or clopidogrel. Now, this is an area, once again, that communication is really important, not just with the surgeon, but also with the cardiologist. Why? Well, not all stents are the same. Maybe that patient has multiple stents. Maybe they have a stent in a critical area. And these factors weigh in as to whether you may actually consider not interrupting the antiplatelet therapy, or although we don't recommend it routinely, we do offer an option to bridge them with a glycoprotein 2B3A inhibitor. Not done very often, but once again, there has to be an individualized aspect to management, but certainly managing patients who have had a coronary stent and need an elective surgery is a challenging area for sure. And then in terms of aspirin, is there anything that you want to highlight in particular about the guideline? Yes. And this is a third area that generated some controversy. And like the other areas among the guideline panel, there was a lot of discussion and there was some disagreement among the panelists. But eventually the consensus for a patient that is on aspirin and needs non-cardiac surgery was to continue the aspirin as the default management. And this, once again, like some other areas, may raise some eyebrows. And how did we come to that decision? Well, it was based on, as I said, direct evidence, but we also combined indirect data and interpretation in the data. So, for example, there's a lot of discussion and debate about the POISE-2 study, a very important landmark trial looking at perioperative ASA use. And some panelists felt that the results of that trial might have been lessened in terms of their applicability because about a third of patients were taking an NSAID and an NSAID might have affected the antiplatelet effect of the aspirin. Some panelists also pointed out that in that trial, the increase in bleeding observed with perioperative use of aspirin was limited to those patients who initiated aspirin perioperatively and did not appear to occur in patients who continued aspirin. So if they were prior users, they didn't appear to be as increased risk for bleeding if they continued perioperatively. But at the same time, we offer an important caveat, and that is in those patients that we the clinician deems to be at increased risk for bleeding, yes, you should interrupt aspirin. Once again, this is a conditional or weak recommendation, but that's the direction we're taking. And if you do interrupt it, as I said before, at least seven to 10 days over versus a longer period of interruption to mitigate against the risk for bleeding. So the default was to continue aspirin, but of course we allow interruption 
in many circumstances where bleeding risk is considered to be high. So I'd really like to congratulate you again on this really thoughtful guideline. It's a great summary of perioperative management, and I'd encourage our listeners to read the guideline and the executive summary for more details. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Dr. James Duquettis for joining us today to discuss this clinical practice guideline. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hamvik. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.